No one will be able to impugn the justice of a God Almighty. And I hear these preachers today, and they so carefully couch their words that Jesus died for those who will repent and believe. My friend, he died for everyone, and I can look at anyone in the eye and say, Christ died for you, he loves you, and if you will come today, he will save you. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures. Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are looking at the chain of salvation, the series of things that take place in an individual once they become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Our study is from Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, and as we pick up, Dr. Brogy explains that the term justification is actually a legal term. And he gives some further insight into this very important word. Justification is an act that takes place at a point in time in your life. Sanctification is the process whereby God makes you more and more like his son. It may change from day to day, but justification never changes. That's why in the introduction to this epistle, he calls every child of God a saint. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, in the opening verse, he calls every Corinthian And if you know the Corinthians, you know that was a church with a lot of problems. He calls every Christian a saint because sainthood is not based on your sanctification. It's based on a declaration that God makes about you. It is an act of God where God declares you righteous. And notice it's not only an act, it's an act of God. It's not something you do. It is something that God does to you. It is from the courtroom. It is a legal term. It's a legal declaration that God makes about you. Now understand, being justified is far more than being pardoned. Being pardoned is something negative. Being justified is something that is very pardoned. Being justified is far more than being pardoned, and it's a thousand times more than being forgiven. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, number one, a judge may pardon you. That is, he may release you from the consequences that your actions deserve, but he cannot forgive you. Only God can truly forgive in the ultimate sense. And even forgiveness is different because forgiveness deals with restoring the relationship. So you can technically be pardoned and not be forgiven, and the corollary is true, you can be forgiven and not be pardoned. When my children were young, sometimes they would say, Daddy, will you forgive me? And I will say, yes. I will forgive you, and I will show them the forgiveness that God had extended to me. And then sometimes they would come right back and say, well, can I go out and play? And I would say, well, no, you cannot, because sometimes there were consequences that they needed to learn from, that they needed to face. Someone may murder a member of your family, and while you can forgive them, you would never probably want to pardon them if you were a judge. Now, forgiveness does not mean forgive and forget. If someone came into your home and raped your wife and murdered her, you would never forget it. But the way you remember it, if you've truly forgiven, is different. You don't remember with a sense of bitterness where it controls you. You release that person, but you would also want the judge to exercise justice because the function of the law is to put down evil and to put up good. And if justice is not exercised, then sin has more freedom in which to function. 
So the voice of pardon says, you may go. You've been let off from the penalty which your, your actions deserve. Whereas the voice of forgiveness says, I, I no longer hold this debt against you. I forgive you. But while I may have been forgiven, that doesn't necessarily mean that I've been justified. Now, it is for the child of God, for the Christian. But understand, being justified and being forgiven is not the same. If all God did when he saved us was forgive us, then you would go to hell. Now, that may sound like heresy to you, and it may shock you, but forgiving you does not make you holy and righteous. And to go to heaven, you need to be as holy and as righteous as God Almighty because He will not allow anything into His heaven that will defile it. And so when God saves us, He not simply forgives us, He declares us righteous in His sight. Now, unfortunately, sometimes Catholics, sloppy Protestants, more often liberal Protestants, take justification and sanctification and they blend them together. And this has happened more recently in the last couple of years, and there's been a lot of discussion in the realms of theology over this issue. So let's think about this for just a moment. Look at verse 30. Look at the word justified. You might want to underline the last two letters of the word. It's a past tense. In Greek, it's what we call an aorist indicative indicating that this took place at a point in time, not over a period of time. So some have falsely taught that a person cannot be saved by faith alone through Christ alone. And they believe that a man is saved not only by faith, but faith plus meritorious works. And so if you were to take their theology and put it into an equation, it might look like this. Faith in Christ's work plus good deeds, good works, will equate to justification. And this is what the whole Protestant Reformation was over. When Martin Luther, in 1542, tacked to the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, those 95 theses or assertions, the Catholic Church responded from 1545 to 1563 with a council known as the Council of Trent. You say, that's ancient. What does it have to do with today? It has everything to do with today because Vatican I and Vatican II reaffirmed everything that was taught at the Council of Trent. And they rejected Martin Luther's understanding that a man was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is precisely what the Bible teaches. And so at the Council of Trent in Canon number 9, they said this, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, saved, declared righteous, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. The word anathema, you recognize it, it's found in Galatians 1, Paul uses it of those who preach a different gospel. He said, if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel, even an angel from heaven, different from the one that I delivered to you, he is to be set aside for judgment. He is to be anathema. In Canon 12, the Catholic Church said, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, which is what the Bible teaches, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified or saved, let him be anathema. Canon 24. 
If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved or kept and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of the justification obtained, which is what the Bible teaches, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Now, what they said at the Council of Trent, what they reaffirmed in Vatican I, Vatican II, is heresy. Now, let me say to many of my Catholic friends, many of them have a whole lot more orthodoxy than the average Protestant church does today. And I thank God for that. And there are many born-again Roman Catholics who, through their own search and study of Scripture, have come to believe on Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and they have no idea what their own church teaches. But lay that aside for just a second. The Bible is very clear that the source of our justification is by the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ and that alone, and we can do absolutely nothing to improve upon that work. And so if you were to relate works to salvation in the New Testament, an equation would look like this, that faith in Christ's work alone, meaning his death and resurrection, equals justification plus good works that good works are the fruit and evidence, and that justification and sanctification are two distinct doctrines. But the Bible-believing Christians who recognize that find a freedom to grow, and those who don't recognize that become very, very confused. And again, you need to distinguish between this one-time act that gives you a new position whereby you are declared holy in God's sight, from this ongoing process whereby God is shaping you into that image. One speaks of our position, the other speaks of our practice. And so the voice of pardon says you may go. You've been let off for the penalty for the crime that you've committed. Where the voice of forgiveness says, I no longer hold this debt against you, I release you, I forgive you. But the voice of justification says, not only is your sin pardoned, not only are you forgiven, not only do I wipe the slate clean, but I reckon I impute to your person the very righteousness that Jesus Christ himself has. I pronounce you a righteous man. And so it is inaccurate to say that justification means just as if I never sinned. It would be better to say just as if I had always perfectly obeyed. And so justification is not simply the remission of our sins. It's not simply the release of punishment, but it's a new ground on which you stand on. And if you believe in sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the final authority, you can come to no other conclusion. Now, that brings us to the final leak in this chain. Notice, for eternity in heaven to become a reality, you have to be predestined. And God, in his prior knowledge, knowing how men would respond to his initiative, predestines those who will respond to become uh, shaped into the image of his son. And so in time and space, it comes down to a calling by which you are justified. And then finally, the fifth link, God's glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And again, you might want to note here, it does not say will glorify. You might want to circle the last two letters of the word glorified. The doctrine of glorification refers to that time when God will complete your salvation and give you a resurrected body like Christ. Now, experientially, I'm waiting for that. I'm not in my glorified body. I still struggle with the sin nature within 
And as I grow in Christ, I increasingly get victory over that. But while experientially I am not glorified, positionally God says it's already done. He says, I've been glorified. In God's mind, it is good as done. In God's mind, there's no leakage between those whom he foreknew and those whom he glorified. Every single one of those are in a past in an aorist tense. So if you are a part of the called that Romans 8.28 speaks of, what God began, he will complete. And so the Lord Jesus, who is called the good shepherd of the sheep, who's called the great shepherd, who's called the chief shepherd, will keep all of his sheep. Listen, if a shepherd left the sheep's fold in the morning with 100 sheep and he came back with 92, he wouldn't be a good shepherd. But a good shepherd wouldn't be satisfied with coming back with even 99. A good shepherd would not be happy if he lost even one. And so it is with our good shepherd. And so Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What marks a true child of God is that God knows them, not just in an information sense. He obviously knows everyone in that sense, but in a relational sense. John will say, quoting Jesus, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. The essence of eternal life is having a personal relationship with the living God, not just knowing about him or of his existence. Every man knows that. There's no such thing even as an atheist in the word of God, though we spend a lot of time writing to them and arguing for the existence of God. The Bible devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We're not just talking about knowing God's existence. We're talking about knowing God personally. That's why Jesus will say to some, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. But of his sheep, he said, my sheep, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Because following Christ is a mark, a fruit of conversion. And I give, we don't earn it. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. This little piece of paper is me, and this is the hand of the Father. Jesus said, I give eternal life to you. You will never perish. No one shall snatch you out of my Father's hand. My Father who is greater than all, no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you. You are secure in Jesus Christ. Every single one whom God foreknew, he will justify. And the Bible promises that he will not lose a single sheep. There is no leakage in this chain from beginning to end. And anyone who tells you that you can lose your salvation is just misinformed. Now, how can we apply this text of Scripture today? Let me suggest several applications as we close. Number one, we must recognize and acknowledge God's sovereignty and salvation. We must recognize and acknowledge God's sovereignty and salvation. I am saved today totally by the grace of God, and I want to give God every bit of honor and every ounce of honor for my salvation because it was all His work as Romans 3 says, by nature, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. If that is true, don't determine it by your experience. If you as a little child sought God, it was in response to God's initiative, very often in response to the prayer of a parent or a grandparent, but by nature, none seeks God. 
And if that's true, and it is because it's impossible for God to lie, the reason I am saved is because God opened my dead heart when I deserve nothing but His wrath. Now, my free will is still there, but nonetheless, when you truly understand the grace of God and God's initiative to save, it shatters all human boasting. Paul will say to the Corinthian church, so that no man may boast before God. Why? Because by His doing... You are today in Christ Jesus. I recognize God's sovereignty and salvation, and if you think about it, even the Arminian does as well. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, go back and listen to the last sermon. If most of us would just think about it for a second, all of us who know Christ today recognize the sovereign grace of God. And really, two facts confirm this. Number one, we thank God for our salvation. And why do you do that? Because you recognize that God was the one who was responsible for your salvation. You didn't save yourself. He saved you all by himself. But there's a second way in which we know that God's grace is sovereign, and that is the way we pray for lost people. We don't say, oh God, I I pray that you will save this person just up to a certain point, and then let their own ability kick in so they can come to Christ. No, from beginning to end, We say, God, work in their heart. Bring them all the way safely into the kingdom of God. And so while we may debate on our feet the sovereignty of God on our knees, we are all totally in agreement. Because God is sovereign, because He started the whole process, what God started, He will complete. Those whom He foreknew, He has glorified. Secondly, not only must we recognize God's sovereignty, but we must recognize and acknowledge God's sovereignty in a way that it does not obliterate man's free will. Understand that God's sovereignty and salvation in no way obliterates the free will of man. You say, Pastor, I don't think I completely understand all this. Well, if you did, you'll probably, if you try to figure it all out, you'll probably find yourself under your bed reciting the Greek alphabet. Listen, I have friends who have it all figured out and all so neatly categorized. There's a certain mystery to it. I understand that. And I don't understand all about the sovereignty of God and how it all works like some of my friends do, but I understand this, that what God has settled in eternity, time will never undo. What God began, God will complete. What has been decreed by heaven can no way be undone by hell. I understand that I am secure in my salvation because of the sovereign work of God and what God has done, man cannot undo. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, that is wonderful. But what if you're not a member of the cult? (laughs) Well, I've got good news for you. You can be. Whosoever will may come, Jesus said. And the one who comes to me, he said, I will in no wise cast out. God is sovereign. And God saved you with a purpose, not just to release you from the penalty of hell, but He saved you to bring you into a relationship with Himself. He wants you to know Him today. If you don't, He wants to save you. And so it began with God, and no one in heaven will be boasting. No one will be strutting like a peacock. We'll be on our faces ascribing all the glory and honor to Jesus Christ. We love Him. Because he first loved us. But in saying that, that doesn't obliterate free will. A very well-known text of Scripture that many Christians quote in reference to assurance of salvation. John will say in 1 John 5, And the testimony, 
Some translations say the witness, the evidence is this, that God has given us. We don't earn it. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This morning, there is no in-between. You can't say, well, I'm half-saved. I'm 75% saved. Now, it is true some people are closer to the kingdom of God than others. One man responded well to a question Jesus asked, and he said, you are near the kingdom, meaning that he was closer than others, but you're either saved or lost, you're either justified, or you are in your own righteousness, which falls short of the glory of God. You either have the Son or you don't. There is no between, in between. But then he says, and here's our free will, these things I've written to you who believe, in the name of the Son of God. Not just about Jesus. Most of America believes about Christ, but in Jesus. And there's a huge difference. Those who believe in Jesus can know, not wonder or think, but know that they have eternal life. Free will is not obliterated by the sovereign work of God Almighty. And if you die and go to hell, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault. Third and finally, we must recognize and acknowledge that God's sovereignty demands our full allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ. It demands our full allegiance and devotion. Listen to these words from Titus 2. Paul writes to that pastor, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and all means all. Again, the hyper-Calvinist teaches the doctrine of a limited or particular redemption, that Jesus didn't die for all. And they say if he died for all, and I covered this in Romans 5 if you want to study it and all the verses they use, they say if he didn't die, if he died for all, then his blood was wasted. It wasn't wasted. It was a payment for everyone's sin. But again, as we'll see in a moment, man still has a free will. And what will be a basis for my justification? and is a basis for my justification, will be a basis for their condemnation because God sends people to hell not just for their actions, but also for their unbelief. No one will be able to say, well, God, I know I deserved hell. After all, I'm a sinner and we all deserve death, the second death, eternal judgment, but you didn't even make a provision for me. No one will be able to impugn the justice of a God Almighty. And I hear these preachers today, and they so carefully couch their words that Jesus died for those who will repent and believe. My friend, he died for everyone, and I can look at anyone in the eye and say, Christ died for you, he loves you, and if you will come today, he will save you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So verse 11 teaches me that the grace of God saves us, and verse 12 teaches that it instructs us. The word instruct literally means in Greek to train a child. Just as we raise our children, we are to be raised from the grace of God. And please note that Paul says it instructs us. Underscore that in your thinking. It's offered to all. It's sufficient to save any but it is only efficient for those who receive. And so he's making a contrast here between the grace that is offered and the grace that is received. Verse 11 teaches God's grace is offered to all men, but to whom does God's grace instruct? Only us. Just believers, those who have come by faith. Now, you know there's a lot of distorted teaching in our day on the doctrine of eternal security. 
And some people will say, well, I'm saved, and because I'm saved, I can live however I want. Or more often, I'll meet professing born-again Christians who will say, well, I've been saved, and I know I'm living in sin, but that doesn't really matter because I've been saved. Or they will sometimes say to me, I may not have much when I get to heaven. I may just have a little old log cabin in the corner, but I'm going because I've been saved, and it really doesn't matter how I live because I've been saved. My friend, when you hear that kind of thinking, you are typically speaking to an unbeliever. Titus deals with them in the opening chapter of the book. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. You see, God's grace instructs us. It schools us in righteous living. And if you've had an encounter with the grace of God, your life will change, instructing us, notice, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's what it does negatively but it invades and it pervades every area of life and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what it teaches you positively. The grace of God teaches you to live sensibly with yourself, righteously with your neighbor, and godly with your Lord. Now, I realize there may be some people here today who have drifted from the Lord, and they are truly saved. And if you can hear today about God's grace in your life and securing you, and you can do nothing. It just tells me how callous you are. And some of us need to get our hearts right before we leave this building. Before this day is over, we should be in our prayer closet somewhere in our face saying, God, forgive me for my indifference. But some of us are really unsure of where we would spend eternity. And God loves you, and Christ died for you, and He will save you today. He can save you today because it is not earned. It is a gift that is received. And so what will you do? Our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for Your amazing grace in Jesus Christ. We who deserve nothing, You've given us everything. And thank You that You never abandon Your children. That if You start with a hundred sheep, You'll end with a hundred that we are secure in Jesus Christ. And oh, how we thank you, how that motivates us to serve you, to love you, to obey you, because we are unconditionally accepted in the beloved. Thank you for giving us the status that we do not deserve, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. I pray today for someone listening to me who is unsure of where they would go. Help them to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help them to know that whoever will call upon Jesus' name will be saved. Would you do that today? Would you say in simple childlike faith, knowing that Jesus paid the debt for all of your sin and proved his ability when he was raised from the dead, would you say in faith, knowing God cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, help us as your people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he might have first place in all things. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. God's offer of salvation is not just for some people, but for anybody. Christ died for all. Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, download the Search the Scriptures app. There you can listen to not only the entire Roman series, but also Pastor Brogy's sermon series on the book of Daniel, the Revelation, and many, many more. 
Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogi in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogi begins his message entitled, More Than Conquerors, as he continues to look at the believer's security in Jesus Christ. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Music